notes if you have. I hope you have your Bibles out already this morning, uh, but you can turn to Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be at for our time. Uh, so as you're turning there, uh, I just want to say, um, when it comes to the topic of shame, uh, it's one of the enemy's greatest tactics to hold us back from truly being fruitful in the life that Jesus gives to us. Um, and I knew, I knew going into this week that there was going to be challenges, there was going to be setbacks, there was going to be little things that would get in the way of uh, our morning this morning. And, you know, if, if my wife was here, she'd testify that, like, it was a long week of studying and planning for uh, this particular moment. And I do believe that it's lar in large part due to the fact that when, when we work on the issues that... Um, so kind of like cut us at the deepest levels of our being. That's where the enemy, that's where the enemy wants to keep us. He wants to keep us focused in on our woundedness, on, on the fact that we feel as though we're not measuring up. And so uh, this, I, I would ask for some of you, if you're home, to just be praying in the moment. Um, because this, we're stepping into kind of the front lines of spiritual warfare. It's not to get weird about it. It's not, you know, we got to start binding spirits or anything strange. Uh, but we, we need to have ears that hear God's word. We need to have hearts that receive uh, his truth. And we need his presence uh, this morning as we consider this topic of shame. So Luke chapter 7, I hope you're already uh, open to it. I'm going to kind of summarize the passage in just a moment, but I wanted to begin by doing a little bit of review, just so we're not like uh, losing the context of where we've been throughout this sermon series. We began uh, looking at the fact that the problem of addiction is a problem of the heart, right? And the problem of the heart is a problem of worship. Romans chapter 1 verse 25 says we've exchanged the truth for a lie and we've worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator. Now that may sound strange to us thinking that worship is like what we, do, what we just did in terms of singing songs and raising hands. But worship is simply this, it is, it is placing our sense of identity in something. Worship is allowing something to define our meaning, worth, and security in life. And what Romans chapter 1 verse 25 says is that we've sought the things of creation. We've sought the things of this world to truly satisfy the longings of our heart. It's a worship disorder. The problem of addiction is a problem of the heart. And the problem of the heart is a problem of worship. And only one can overhaul the heart. And only one is truly worthy of our worship and it's Jesus. That's what we saw in week one. But then we looked more closely at this dynamic of the heart and how it goes about worshiping, right? And we began to recognize from the story of uh, the wise man and the foolish man, we began to see that, yes, we often will seek meaning, worth, and security in the things of this world. We'll pursue power. We'll pursue things uh, like seeking love and, and comfort in order to satisfy the deep needs of our heart and life. But when the storms of life come and our, our objects of worship, the things that we've allowed to define our, our, ourselves, are, are taken away or lost or threatened, suddenly we're, we're at a, a place of lack. Suddenly we understand just how empty and bankrupt we really are. And once again, what scripture is saying is there's one who alone can satisfy the deep longings 
of our heart. So we saw that Jesus ultimately is the rock that we are to build our lives upon. And then just last week, we we began to illustrate this, specifically through the story of Zacchaeus. Remember, small Zacchaeus, a man who probably endured, as we'll talk about, endured different aspects of shame. He was a man who probably in some ways, just because of his stature, was marginalized, made fun of. So how did he respond to that shame? Well, he responded by pursuing power. He became a tax collector. And what he ultimately did was betrayed his own people to then gain his own wealth, his own sense of power at the expense of his people. Oftentimes we see that in addiction, that we go after things, even if it causes other people's pain, in order to kind of fulfill these needs in our hearts, these needs for meaning, for worth, for security. And so now this morning, we're going to look a little bit more deeply at this idea of, of shame. Uh, in, in my experience and in my own uh, kind of like journey through um, different kinds of addiction, uh, once again, we're, we're all on the spectrum somewhere of suffering from addiction. And the fact of the matter is, even as I've looked at my own life, as I've helped others and, and served others in their journey, what, what inevitably comes to the surface is some deep sense of shame. The most destructive uh, addictions are those that at the core of everything, there is this reality of shame that must be dealt with. And so what we're going to do in the moments that we have here is simply look at what is shame, how does it drive addictive behavior, and then what can be done about our shame. So let's jump right into it. Uh, what is shame? And I want to summarize Luke chapter 7. So I hope you have your eyes there in Luke chapter 7. As we look at the text, what we find in verse 36 is Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee. A Pharisee in this day was kind of the religious elite. He was the guy who, you know, knew his Bible inside and out. He was the guy who, before uh, the, the, the society, was a man of piety. He had his stuff, so to speak, together. And what we find is Jesus is going to the Pharisee's house to have a, a meal with him. And, and as this is happening then, um, and, and this, this home would have probably been like a pavilion style where it's open walls, the wind can just kind of come through, the breeze can come through. And in these moments, as Jesus is sitting with this Pharisee, a woman, and not just any woman, but a woman from the city. And as the text says in verse 37, who was a sinner. She's a, a woman of the city and she's a sinner. That those are words that are packed full of meaning. Literally, what is being said here is this, this is a, a prostitute. And, and she has now come into this Pharisee's house and is, in some sense, interrupting this meeting that Jesus is having with Simon the Pharisee. That this kind of break-in, if you will, would, would have been even... Um, legally punishable. Uh, what she is doing here is, is taking incredible risk. And what is she doing in these moments? She's going to Jesus' feet. 
and she begins to wash his feet with her tears and with her hair. And then she proceeds to take this alabaster ointment and pour it over the feet of Jesus. Now, if you notice in verse 39, when this goes down, suddenly Simon, and we don't know if he's saying this out loud, but whatever, whatever is happening, Jesus picks up on just the heart and, and what's happening in the mind of Simon the Pharisee. In verse 39, Simon is saying, if Jesus were kind of like a real religious man, if he was a true prophet, if he was someone really of religious significance, he would not be allowing this woman to touch him. Why? Well, because she's a woman of the city. She's a sinner. She's a prostitute. She, in Simon's eyes, is the worst of the worst. But when Jesus then proceeds in this story, we find something very unique. What Jesus is doing is actually saying... Simon, you think that she is not right? You think she's defiled? You think she's unclean? You think she should be put out uh, at, at a distance? You think she's the one who doesn't belong here? Jesus then goes on to explain to Simon, Simon, the opposite is actually true. She belongs with me. The fact of the matter is that you, Simon, and all of your religiosity are the one who is unclean. You're the one who does not belong. You're the one who's not with me. You see, at core, what this story is all about is this idea of shame. It's Simon who's pointing out she's not right, she doesn't belong, she's not acceptable, when Jesus is saying, Simon, actually the opposite is true. She belongs, while the reality of it is, Simon, you're one who does not belong. You're the one on the outside. This is the reality of shame. This is the essence of shame. And, and folks, whether it's this story or the whole Bible narrative, the whole Bible narrative is about shame. It's about, at essence, who belongs, who doesn't. It's about who's unclean, who's clean, who's on the end and who's not on the end, who's on the outside, who's on the inside. Ultimately, what we see even in Genesis chapter 2 at the very beginning, Adam and Eve sin, right? And they feel shame. They cover themselves. They hide themselves. And, and in a real sense, they're, they're placed outside of the garden. This is the feeling of shame. We could define shame perhaps this way. Shame is the feeling of being unacceptable or unlovable because of what you have done failed to do, or what has been done to you. Shame is the feeling of being unacceptable or unlovable because of what you have done, failed to do, or what has been done to you. See, when we talk about shame, shame is, is, is distinct. You know, oftentimes we think of shame and guilt being a similar thing. Well, they're actually distinct things. Sometimes we think of shame and sorrow being similar things, but they're actually distinct things. You see, guilt is felt, we could say, like in the courtroom setting, and, and guilt states, I did something wrong, right? 
Sorrow, on the other hand, is kind of felt in our everyday experience. It's felt on the block, if you will. And it, and it states something is wrong, right? Whether it's circumstances, uh, whether it's situations, there, there's something. I hear the sirens. I hear the fighting. Something is, is wrong. There's, there's sorrow in that sense. Things aren't what they should be. But shame is felt in community. Guilt is kind of in the courtroom. You know, sorrow is felt kind of on the block. Things aren't right. But shame is felt in community. It, it, it's felt in the family uh, circle. It's felt in, in relationship to one another. And while guilt will say, I did wrong, while sorrow will say, something is wrong, shame says, I am wrong. There's something wrong with me. I'm unacceptable. I'm unlovable. I don't belong. Perhaps because of something I've done, perhaps of something because I've failed to do, or perhaps because of something done to me. You know, the illustration of shame is often the experience of that kid who's like the last to be uh, picked on the kickball team. You know, so so there you have everyone line up and everyone's picked, and yet here's, here's the child who's left last. There's oftentimes a, an experience of shame in that moment where, where the child realizes, oh, I don't, I don't add up. I'm, I, I don't belong. I'm, I'm the last one picked. That's the essence of shame. Like, I'm not on the inside of the community. I'm, I'm, I'm rejected. I don't belong. I'm unacceptable. I'm unlovable. I don't meet up to the standard uh, in some way. Folks, when we look at this story, this is exactly what Simon is doing to this woman. He's saying, he's calling out, she's unclean, she doesn't belong. But the whole point of the passage is that Jesus has the authority to kind of shatter the social strata of the moment. Where Simon is looking down on her, Jesus is reversing things, and, and he is saying, actually, she's on the in, Simon, you're actually on the out. Jesus is the one who's ultimately determining who should feel shame and who should not. Now, another aspect of shame, maybe just to insert here to kind of fill out this idea of shame, is that shame is often coupled with the idea of adultery. Uh, idolatry throughout scripture. Um, idolatry, remember, isn't, isn't about this kind of wood figure that you're setting up to, you know, bow down to. Uh, idolatry is, once again, just placing our sense of meaning, worth, and security in, in anything less than God. You're, you're setting up idols in your life, right? And, and so the idea then is, is this, is is idolatry is allowing anything less than God to determine your meaning, significance, and security. What you allow to determine your worth is what you ultimately worship. And shame, shame then is experienced, it's oftentimes felt when the idols we worship fail us. When suddenly we recognize the storms of life come and they just show us just how brittle and unstable really the things that we hoped would meet our heart's need don't. They fail. They're lost. Whether that's in relationships, whether that's in achievements, whether that's in career, 
right? When it comes to this experience of shame, it's often felt when the idols we've pursued kind of fail us. They let us down. We feel in those moments as though, oh no, we just don't add up because my meaning, my worth, my security was resting in that thing and now that thing has been threatened, now that thing has been lost and therefore shame sets in. I'm not acceptable, I'm not significant, I have no value, now I'm I'm the one who's on the out. I don't belong. This is where Shame strikes, it strikes at our identity, it strikes at our sense of worth. And it's often experienced when our idols fail us. So once again, shame is this feeling of being unacceptable or unlovable because of what you've done, failed to do, or what has been done to you. It's distinct from guilt, it's distinct from sorrow, it has to do largely in in terms of relationship, but also it strikes at our identity. When our idols are threatened, we will oftentimes feel a sense of shame. When we hang our significance on things that fail us, we will inevitably feel shame. Now, the question is, how then does shame drive addiction? Well, let's let's look at the characters that are at least represented in this particular story. Think about the prostitute here, and think about the religious Pharisee. When it comes to prostitution first, in our own day, statistics reveal that 95% of prostitutes have suffered from sexual abuse at a young age. In other words, at a very young age, they are marked by shame. Something of their own sense of dignity is stripped from them. And they're often abused by the very ones who should be providing for them love, security, and trust. Something that all children are deserving of. But it's this shame that so often then will set them on a course to find what they've lost even if it comes at the expense of further hurt and further shame. When it comes to the example of prostitution, um, one one counseling group has has written um, some statistics and storylines and information on this, and they, they state this, many of those living on the street are fueled by feelings of abandonment by their biological families and crave a sense of belonging. They quickly form new street families, complete with pseudo-parents, siblings, and other extended family relationships. These young women desiring love and protection forge immediate bonds with those they believe will provide the social support they need to survive. These bonds set up girls and young women for recruitment by commercial sex traffickers who often pose as daddy or husband. Once a pimp has established himself as the primary relationship, the patriarch in the street family, he introduces the idea of prostitution to her as something she must do to contribute financially to their street family. She will endure violent beatings and suffer humiliation, thinking she is on her daddy's team, his number one girl, but he's actually manipulating her. She endures this in exchange for his promised love. 
and for inclusion in his underground social network, a family that provides a sense, listen, of belonging. You see, shame only heightens our need to have something of belonging, something of meaning, significance, and security, something of love in relationship to others. Even if it's false intimacy, even if it's, even if it's relationship which is shallow and manipulative and destructive, we, we desire these things as those who have lost out on those things. It's this shame that oftentimes will drive even further, further hurt and further shame Shame upon shame upon shame. Folks, this is the destructive nature of shame. The thing that we lost out on, we have to have all the more. And if we don't find it, then, then, then what we're doing is numbing ourselves to the screaming shame within us. That we don't belong, that we don't have love, that we're not of worth, that we don't have the security that we were wired for. This is how shame will oftentimes drive addiction. When we look at um, Simon the Pharisee, you know, oftentimes when we think about, on the other hand, the religious experience, we don't tend to think of it as potential for addiction. (laughs) But it is no less addiction when it comes down to it. Uh, we, t- we tend to have certain kind of streams of you know, drug abuse and, and whatever, whatever it is, sexual addictions you know, or pornography addictions, and, and those are the things that we typically see as being, oh, that, that's addiction. But the fact of the matter is what is rampant within the Western church today <laughs> is a religious addiction. And it lines up with Simon the Pharisee. You see, even in this story, it's clear that Jesus has been pointing out that Simon's religious piety wasn't giving him the true life and freedom that he was assuming. It wasn't producing, as Jesus points out in verse 41 and following, Jesus is actually saying, Simon, the life that you live isn't producing true love. You're not one who is actually loving In in your religious experience, you're a consumer. You're one who's standing on your own achievements, on your own religious performance. And in a real sense, this is addiction. We have to keep up with with, with some sort of idea of what is acceptable within the religious community. For Simon, his religious piety is like a house of cards. One misstep and your sense of religious significance and belonging in the religious community can come just tumbling down. The threat of religious shame drives his religious addiction. It motivates his piety. I remember one story of a pastor whose teenage daughter got pregnant in order to protect his own pastoral reputation, in order to kind of continue to live up in some kind of way to this religious expectation, he tried to have his daughter quietly abort the child. He would quietly abandon his religious standards to maintain something of his own religious reputation. Folks, when it comes down to it, even the threat of shame will drive addiction. 
So when it comes to our religious experience, why do we do what we do? <laughs> you know, even, even this morning, as, as, we're, as we're coming in, you know, I, I had miscommunicated. Uh, and, and so some folks showed up to the building early, and they didn't need to. And in this moment where I have miscommunicated, what do I feel? I feel shame. I'm not living up, right, to some kind of standard that Dan should be. And so immediately you feel shame. You feel, oh, I'm, I'm unacceptable. I've failed. Shame then can drive this performance. Well, I got to do better. I got to do better. I got to do better. I, I, I can't fail again. I can't fail again. I can't fail again. I can't fail again. Shame will drive addiction. Now, it's, it's also important to note in all of this is that whether it's an addiction that stems from an experience of shame or whether it's from a threat of shame, shame tells us we have to do something to cover it up or make it right. In other words, shame tempts us to pick up our wills and kind of manage things on our own. When, when shame strikes at kind of the core of our being, it's oftentimes that we're not going to let anybody kind of touch that. We're not going to let anybody come into that vulnerable space. And so what we do is we choose to manage our own shame. We, we build up the blocks of our lives. We self-preserve. We manage our lives in order to cover up our shame. But the fact of the matter, that only leads to damage relationships, because now you can never ultimately have a sense of true relationship with someone, true a sense of trust, a true sense of belonging. Why? Because you're always internally thinking, do I, do I match up? Do I really belong? If they would know who I really am, if they would know the wounds that I really carry, do I match up? Would I truly belong? You see, it's, we have to be careful of recognizing that, like, sometimes, yes, shame is something that is done against us. But oftentimes, what we'll do is pick up our own will and say, I have to manage this. And that often becomes the downfall, the spiraling out, because the fact of the matter is we could never truly manage our own shame. There's nothing you can do to outperform your shame. There's nothing that you can do to quiet the scream of your shame. There's nothing that you can do to ultimately heal your heart of the wounds of shame. Inevitably, what shame will do is it will drive addiction. It will drive you to perform. It will drive you to put mask on, to put some sort of curb appeal up so that in some sense you're acceptable, but it's not true acceptance because we're not being honest with really the wounds of our own hearts. Now, the question then is, what can be done about my shame? In our culture, shame is more or less boiled down to the issue of self-esteem. So that's like the hot topic that you end up dealing with when it comes to problems of shame. You know, you need to just manage your self-esteem a little bit better. You need to do things that you can kind of take pride and take confidence in. Uh, you know, I, I, I even, I, I went through some of this with my kids uh, just yesterday. And, and as I was explaining to them what shame was, my, my daughter said, isn't that uh, like the Greatest Showman movie, right? 
And it is, it is, it is truly the essence of shame, but it's truly kind of the agenda of our world that says, here's how you manage your shame. You know, this, the, the greatest showman is a bunch of misfits. And, and initially in the storyline, what are they doing? But they're hiding, they're isolated in their shame. So you got the little Napoleon guy, and what does he do? He's, he's closed away in his room. You have the woman with the beard, and she's hiding behind the sheets. You have these people isolated in their shame. But then you have the savior, P.T. Barnum, and what does he do? He, he, he brings them into the light and says, no, we need to take confidence in, in, our, in our shame. We need to take confidence in the ways that we're not matching up. Like, let's leverage this and let's take confidence in ourselves. So you listen to some of the songs and it's all about this self-esteem issue. It's all about, let's just take confidence in all the ways that we just feel shame. Folks, I'm just gonna say it bluntly, that does not work. It does not heal your heart. I, I know it by, like, we, we could look to scripture and go, I, I know it by my own experience. As a young kid, I was always wanting to match up to my older brothers. I wanted their affirmation. I wanted to, to hear their, their, their affirmation of me as a younger brother. In my performance and what I could do, I wanted to hear that they were proud of me in some way. And, and that led to a life of just kind of always feeling like I wasn't matching up. And so even by the time I get to college, it's all about performance. It's all about being strong. It's all about doing well at sports. And, and eventually those things begin to fail. And so what do I do? Well, I think, all right, well, here's this, this fear, this performance. I, I, I got to deal with it in some way. And so I, I, I go out for the, the school play, which was way out of my wheelhouse. And, and even in that, you know, I ended up getting an award for this, for this play. And suddenly I'm feeling like, yes, th this is stirring my self-confidence. This is bringing some sort of uh, a cure to my sense of shame, the fact that I don't belong or match up. And it helped for a moment. There was confidence for a time. But then the play is done with, the award ceremonies are done with, and, and you go back to your own kind of way of doing life, and what happens but shame just continually tends to creep up on you. And to tell you all over, you don't belong, you don't belong, you don't add up. Folks, we can't just manage our self-esteem. That's something that we don't have the right, the authority, the power to accomplish. We don't, we don't have it in us to determine our meaning, our worth, and our security in this life. It's not something we can manufacture. It's not something we can preserve. It's not something we can hold on to. It's something that ultimately has to be determined by another. So what can be done about my shame? Well, the text points out this, that the woman of the city, oh my goodness, she is a changed woman. Where she has come from to now this, to this lavish kind of worship that she's pouring out on Jesus. She's not there to manipulate. She's not there to gain something. She's not operating perhaps in kind of the underhanded uh, manipulative ways that she would have been used to. She's not striving for some sort of shallow kind of love or some sort of false intimacy. 
she comes into this setting knowing that more shame is going to get heaped upon her. And yet she comes with this incredible vulnerability. You, you see it in the text where she's not, she's not defensive. She's not, you know, going toe-to-toe with Simon in these moments. No, she's focused on one person. And she's coming to him with incredible vulnerability. It's the opposite of shame. Shame covers up. Shame tends to preserve oneself. This vulnerability is radical change in this woman's life. She enters with this incredible vulnerability, but then also as Jesus uh, outlines in verses 41 and following, she's the one who demonstrates to Jesus love. Not superficial love, not this, hey, I'll give you uh, something if you give me something. It's not an exchange. It's agape love. She's coming to Jesus to give of herself to Jesus, to lay all of herself before Jesus. It's an incredible vulnerability. It's an incredible love that she's demonstrating as she comes before Jesus. And what does she do? She uses her tears and her hair to wash Jesus' feet. And then she pours alabaster ointment upon Jesus' feet. Some commentators say that that this ointment would be worth upwards of a yearly salary in that day. This was a costly thing, probably the most costly thing that she owned, and she's bringing it to Jesus. Now, I can't help, and maybe I'm stretching the text in different ways, but I can't help but think that she's taking money from all these moments of false intimacy. She's taking money from all these detestable moments of shame upon shame, soul wound upon soul wound. And what is she doing with that money? She's now casting it as alabaster ointment on the feet of Jesus. In a real demonstration of handing over Jesus her shame, she's saying, Jesus, I'm giving you everything I have. I'm coming to you with all my brokenness, with all my backwardness, with all my sense of not belonging, with all my hurt, with all my bruises, with all the rejection. I'm coming to you, Jesus, and I'm pouring it all out on your feet. She is saying, Jesus, I give you my shame. I give you my will. I give you my all. And how does Jesus respond to this? It's fantastic. First, we see that Jesus receives her. Folks, Jesus receives us in our shame. He receives us in our shame. He's not one who's going to kind of have that heavy brow looking down on us, kind of questioning us whether or not we really add up. He's not one who's going to say, all right, well, let's let's start some kind of performance now to really see if, if, if you're acceptable or not. He's not standing there like about to test you. He knows. He knows our shame inside and out. He knows all our brokenness. He knows all our woundedness. And with gentleness, with gentleness, he receives us. He says, come to me. Pour out all your wounds, pour out all your shame upon my feet. Cast them upon me. That's what Jesus does. He receives us. 
and all our brokenness. She was beaten, she was broken down, she was lovesick, but she brought it all to Jesus, and he received her. Jesus receives us in all our shame. But then second, what does Jesus do in this context? Well, he defends her. <laughs> he defends her in her shame. While Simon is kind of, you know, Simon's recoiling at these moments. He's appalled by the fact that she would have the audacity to enter into his home. Who is she to come into this clean space? Oh, you, you, you would have been able to kind of cut the tension in, in, in the room in those moments. But Jesus, in, those, in that setting, he not only receives her, but he defends her. I mean, just, if you look at the text, it's so interesting that what Jesus does is actually stand with her in her shame. Simon is pointing out, she doesn't belong, and because Jesus is allowing her to touch his feet, well, he doesn't belong. That's what Jesus does. He steps into our shame. He stands there with us in our shame. And what does he do? But he defends us. When we are not deserving, when we've done nothing to perform to gain his love, what does he do? He has lavish mercy. He has lavish grace upon us. He enters into our shame and he stands there with us. The clean, the true clean one who would stand with the unclean. And in standing with the unclean would make them clean. This is what Jesus does. And, and, and as the text then continues, it's, it's Jesus who's identifying with her, but then he's further defending her by saying, Simon, she belongs to me. Right? He's, he's, he's rearranging all the values in the moment where he's saying, Simon, actually, you're the one who didn't love me when she is demonstrating incredible agape love to me. Actually, she is the one who belongs, and it's actually she. As Jesus uh, finishes up, he will say, it's she who has forgiveness. She is forgiven by me. And, and then he says, your faith has saved you. At the very end, verse 50, he says, go in peace. <laughs> know that when Jesus steps into our shame, what does he do? But he brings shalom. He brings peace. He's the only one who can actually silence the voice of shame deep within. He's the only one who can truly heal. He's the only one in this setting who can defend us, who will stand up for us, whose voice ultimately matters. He alone has the authority to say who belongs and who doesn't, who should feel shame and who shouldn't. And in this moment, he's stepping into her shame and now defending her. But finally, what Jesus does is, is he ends up then also defining her. Jesus, when it comes down to it, will not leave us in our shame. The idea that Jesus declared her forgiven publicly was Jesus' way of saying she's new and she is not to be defined by all the wrong she's done. She's not to be defined by all the failings that she has done. No, it's, 
It's that she is to be defined by my word. It's not that she's going to be defined by the wrongs that have been done against her, but she is going to be defined by my word. She is forgiven. She is mine. You see, in this setting, she is to be defined by all that Christ is for her. It's Jesus who is to get the final say over our shame. It doesn't matter if wrong things, uh, of the wrong things that we've done or the right things that we've failed to do or the things that others have done to us. Jesus is the one who is to get the final say over our shame, especially the wounds that we carry. Especially. Folks, just, just think this is the way I process it personally even in my own sense of battling shame. Don't forget that you are an image bearer. If we are image bearers, then what has been done to us has been done ultimately against God. The wounds that you carry are wounds that God himself feels. You're an image bearer, right? You reflect something of him, and therefore for you to be disgraced is for God to be disgraced. For your dignity to be marred is for God's dignity to be marred. And therefore our shame should not stop with us. It shouldn't stop in the harbor of our hearts, but it should be let out into the ocean of God's grace. It should be given over to him saying, Jesus, I have been created, defined by you, and therefore my wounds must find their place with you. I must hand my shame over to you. That's what we find this woman of the city doing. She comes to Jesus Jesus receives her, defends her, and defines her anew. He says, bring to me all your shame. See, when it comes down to it, um, we see this throughout Scripture, is that when, when we are in Christ, when we have come to faith in Him, when we when we have come to know something of him, when we feel contaminated, he promises to cleanse us. Ezekiel chapter 36, it's God's intention to cleanse us with water. When we feel humiliated, he prizes us. Zephaniah chapter 3, he sings over us. When we feel exposed, he covers us up. He shelters us under his wing. He puts the robe of his righteousness upon us and declares us unstained. When we feel vulnerable, he defends us. He becomes our refuge, Psalm 46. When, when we feel rejected, oh, he accepts us. Accepted not by the things we've done or failed to do, but accepted by the work that he alone has accomplished on our behalf. When we feel abandoned, he never lets us go. Romans chapter 8, nothing will separate you from his love. When you feel discriminated against, he calls you family. He says you're no longer strangers or aliens, but you're members of the household of God. 
when we feel like a failure, he declares you approved. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You see, this is what Jesus in the Gospel of Luke was ultimately on a trajectory to do for this woman of the city. Yes, he declared her forgiven. Yes, he defined her anew. He defended her, but ultimately he would satisfy those things in the work that he would accomplish at that cross. He would bear shame in himself. He would endure that rejection. He would suffer the abandonment. Why? So that ultimately we can be cleansed of our shame. Whether it's the shame that we feel before God, where it's like, man, my my sin is too great for God. He won't want me. The fact of the matter is there is no sin too great for his mercy. Or when it comes to the fact that you feel too broken, too wounded, too marred, too stained to be acceptable before God. He's the one who also says, bring me your heart wounds. That's why he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's why Jesus says, if you're thirsty, he's not just talking about physically, he's talking about that deep kind of pain within the soul that says, I gotta have satisfaction, I gotta have change, I gotta silence this shame in some way. That's why Jesus says, come to me, come to me, and I'll satisfy you, I'll heal you, I'll be the balm that you ultimately need. Folks, when it comes down to this question of what are we to do with our shame, we must go to Jesus. We must go to Jesus. We must go to Jesus. We must surrender our will. We must surrender our shame to him. And just know, I just, I think it needs just kind of repeating. He deals gently with us. He deals gently. The enemy will put thoughts in your mind, oh man, you know, this God, this Jesus, you know, to be open and honest before him with my heart, oh, he's not going to be good, he's not going to be good, he's not going to be good. It was the very lie that Adam and Eve believed before they incurred shame. God's must not be good, he must not have the best in mind for us. But the fact of the matter is that's, that's a lie. It's a lie. Jesus will deal gently. Jesus will deal lovingly with you. Now, maybe just by way of conclusion, you'd say, you know, Dan, I've, I've, I've done all that. I've, I've, I've trusted in Jesus. But man, the voice of shame just kind of remains ever so strong. I know I've shared this illustration several times. I couldn't cut it out for today. I, I, I think I'd want to inform you with the story of Corey Tin Boom, right? Where her and her sister Betsy um, suffered greatly uh, in this Nazi regime camp. And this is what uh, Corey writes. She says, Fridays, The recurrent humiliation of undressing for medical inspection. The hospital corridor in which we waited was unheated 
and a fall chill had settled into the walls. Still, we were forbidden even to wrap ourselves in our own arms, but had to maintain our standing hands at side position as we filed slowly past the flanks of grinning guards. How there could have been any pleasure in the sight of these stick-thin legs and hunger-bloated stomachs, I could not imagine. Surely there is no more wretched sight than the human body unloved and uncared for. Nor could I see the necessity for the complete undressing. When we finally reached the examining room, a doctor looked down each throat, another a dentist presumably at our teeth, a third in between each finger, and that was all. We trooped again down the long, cold corridor, picked up our X-marked dresses at the door. But it was one of these mornings, while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. The paintings, the carved crucifixes, showed at least a scrap of cloth. But this, I suddenly knew, was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at that time itself, on the other Friday morning, there had been no reverence. No more than I saw in the faces around us now. So I said, Betsy, they took his clothes off too. Ahead of me, I heard a little gasp, Oh, Corey, and I never thanked him. You see, if you're struggling with the voice of shame, saying, you don't belong, you don't belong, you're too stained, you're too broken, worship is the antidote to shame. Worship gets our eyes and our affections on the one who ultimately loves us, who ultimately defines us, who ultimately defines, right, our shame. We silence shame by worshiping our Savior. May that be for those of you who are struggling to worship the Savior. And therein, let's shame be silenced. Let's pray together. Father, we are uh, so grateful that you would um, send your son to enter into our brokenness. Thank you, Jesus, that um, you're one who doesn't just kind of wave a wand at us from a distance and say, you're all better now. Um, Thank you that you came to feel what we feel. Thank you that you came to be broken for us. Thank you that you came to be rejected for us, that you would be abandoned for us, that you would be stripped naked publicly 
for us. Thank you that you are a savior who knows the awfulness of shame. But thank you that you're a savior who's gone the distance for us, who's ever so gentle and careful with us in all of our brokenness. But thank you, thank you that your voice can silence our shame. Thank you that you and you alone can bring healing to the depths of our hearts. So Jesus, even in, as we kind of close things out, we want to worship you. We want to get our eyes upon you, the one who receives us, who defends us, and who ultimately defines us. God, I pray for any of those who may be harboring shame without casting upon you. God, lift the burden of their heart and life. Bring, bring about the work of healing, the process of healing even now. When they kind of take down the blocks of their life and say, Jesus, my, I cannot manage this any longer. I can't do the work of covering this up any longer. I can't do the work of hiding this any longer. Jesus, would they find that there is freedom in surrendering even their shame to you, their will to you. And may we all do that in some way afresh, even now, that we would trust you with all of our goodness and all of our brokenness. So Jesus, still healing work in our hearts, we pray. Do it, Lord, do it. Do it. Let us not go another day just trying to get by on our own strength and our own wisdom. May it be that we would trust in you, lean not on our own understanding, and therein find that it is healing to our flesh and refreshment to our bones. Heal us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name.
God, I want to lift up the women in our church specifically right now. They're on my heart. Um, so many experiencing shame that is either brought on by bad decisions Just kind of finally, just hearing the Lord say Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Um, Yahweh is the name uh, for God's covenant-keeping promises. That he never fails, he never falters. Why? Because he's the all-sufficient, self-existent God. In other words, nothing can thwart him, nothing can change him, Nothing can alter his purposes. He's a God who, therefore, we can entrust our shame to, knowing that he's not going to turn on us. He's not going to change the rules as, as things are going. He's never going to throw shame back in our face. He's never going to bring up our, our, our woundedness in and, and all the, the wrong ways. He's the faithful, covenant-keeping God. He's Yahweh. He's the one that we can trust. So, Father, we pray that your spirit 
rest upon us in power. We pray, Yahweh, that your name would just be a banner over our hearts, that it would be a banner over our shame, that it would be a banner over our, all our attempts to kind of self-manage and self-preserve our wounds. I let your name kind of just ring in our hearts and our minds. Would your name bring healing to our hearts? And God, I pray, I pray that, that as you bring healing to our hearts, that it would enrich relationships. Would just take, her, take us deeper into the, to the goodness, to the blessing that relationships really are. a gift from you. We come to encounter you through others in so many different ways. So we, we pray that you would do this healing work so we wouldn't operate in kind of this false intimacy in this shallow realm of relationship, but we could go deep and be okay because you're our defender. We could be vulnerable because you have us secure. You have our greatest wounds secure in yourself. So we just want to thank you, God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, again, if there's ways we could be praying for you, or if there's ways that uh, even as a result of this, that you just may say, hey, I need some help a little further. Uh, conversation or whatever, like feel free to reach out to us. Uh, we'd love to engage on that level. Otherwise, grace and peace to you guys. See you on later on this week.